0: Everyday Ignorance. My name is Alexander.
1: My name is Peter.
0: And we are the perfect mix of history and humor for your listening pleasure. So That's right. Uh, today we'll be covering part two of Communion, um, Still Commuting, where we talk mm. about Whitley Strieber and uh, his book Communion, talking about aliens, talking about life on other planets, Peter, mm. uh, and perhaps life on this planet. Right. Uh, Yeah, and where it'll be in a few years. So... Right. um, Excuse me. Uh, I did really quick want to get into, uh, before we get into anything, I did want to say that uh, somebody did send us an email. This is from, Mm. uh, I'm just going to say the first name, Rebecca. Uh, So, this is actually our very first email we ever done on the show. Uh, Mm. If you do want to write us an email, it's everydayignorance1 at gmail.com. That's everydayignorance1 at gmail.com. So she says, to whom it may concern, I was listening in on the ninth podcast, the one where Alexander got laid off. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm just going <laughs> to say that. And Peter, <laughs> and Peter started dating. And you posed a question to truck drivers, why their trucks get weighed. Although I'm not a truck driver, I do work for a local trucking company, and I have an answer for you. Trucks are weighed because of a lot of states collecting taxes on transported goods based on the weight of the truck. In addition, trucks that are too heavy become more of a safety concern because the heavier the truck is, the more difficult it becomes to control. Wow. A heavy truck load makes it very easy to blow a tire, and if multiple tires blow, then there is a higher chance of causing an accident.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: A truck that is too heavy can also cause major damage to roads. Semis are designed to hold a specific amount of weight and should not exceed Eighty thousand pounds per federal law, so that's wow. where the fines come in. The weight maximum can vary by state laws. North Dakota is technically a hundred and five thousand on state highways, but generally, we like to keep it under that eighty thousand mark. I hmm. hope that helps. Sincerely, Rebecca. Uh, that does help. Does that clear up anything for you, Peter?
1: Uh, yeah, I remember that podcast and. Uh, yeah. It was, it was like a foray into uncharted territory for us because even though you have your CDL and have driven some truck, um, we still didn't know a lot about it. So thank you, Rebecca. We appreciate your time. Take taking the time to email us that.
0: Yeah. And, uh, if anybody does have any questions, definitely send us an email at everydayignorance1 at gmail.com. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's always a pleasure to read what our listeners uh, are going ahead and sending into us and yeah. uh, I don't know if I mentioned I think I might have mentioned the last podcast that we now have people in France listening mm. to us so, yeah I believe so big shout out to Paris just want to say thank you for being an awesome city so um, one thing that I have thought about with this book and I've been reading it it is I don't know what it happens it's like I slog through these books I get on these books and I read them and then I feel like I go into muck mm. you, ever, you ever walk in like that stuff you ever, you ever start sinking in mire or muck
1: I have when I've read Lord of the Rings okay no, I yeah. mean physically okay have mm. I ever sunk yes I have okay yeah what happened um, my boots got stuck and may have come off hmm in the mud, yeah.
0: Um, I uh, lived by a creek when I was a kid in the city, and there was actually beavers in there, so it was kind oh, of Oh yeah. Uh, my mom and I would walk the dog, and I remember one time I wanted to get in the water because they had these giant like concrete tunnels where I guess it drained in there. Mm. And I don't know why. Maybe I wanted to be killed by Pennywise the Dancing Clown as a child. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I just remember like putting my foot. But it wasn't my foot. It was a boot because I bought these waterproof boots. And I was mm. really excited to do it. And I thought I'd be able to just stand up and uh, immediately started sinking in mud. I mean, it didn't sink super far. But it was right. like you get it and then your boot gets stuck. And then you can just pull your foot out. And right. it's awful. So <clears throat> that's how I feel when I read these books. Just so you know. That's how I feel whenever I choose a topic and I read the books. Um, that's why I think like things like off the rails is kind of easier for me, especially when uh, you and I have had a really long week together because we were moving. I was moving, and then you were helping me, um, mm-hmm. and then I was living here for a short time. <laughs> so, uh, but sure. but I moved in. That's all that matters. Um, yes. So, uh, one thing I had been thinking about, and I thought about this before we like really did anything, was. So we're talking about aliens, and Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the world's dumbest college professor, by the way, whenever I say that. Like, all right, we're going back to aliens again. So, all right, kids. All right, so remember what we were talking about last week about aliens? But, uh, so we're talking about aliens, and one thing that kind of coincides, or it's like a Venn uh, diagram with that, would be something called the Fermi Paradox. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Fermi Paradox.
1: Um, I've heard of it because of you, if yeah. that counts. Well, there you go. That, that but does it does count because it's like, you're like a walking encyclopedia, Alexander.
0: Well, Peter, you know, I really appreciate that. What's a, What are you? Are you a walking pharmacy? <laughs> I'm a
1: walking grammar, grammar no. and, and spell checker.
0: Oh, no, nice. thank you. Thank you. Um, There was a man, he was born in 1901, and he died in 1954. His name was Enrico Fermi. Uh, He was an Italian, and then he became a later naturalized American. Hmm. Uh, He's actually the creator of the world's first nuclear reactor. Oh, wow. Um, He was a physicist, and he was called the architect of the nuclear age and the architect of the atomic bomb.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: You know, the concept of aliens has been around for a long time. This isn't just like in the 80s or the 70s or Whitley Streber. Aliens have been around for forever. And uh, Mm. one thing that he kind of postulated is that, you know, where are they? And um, Mm -hmm. he started saying that maybe it's very possible uh, that they... May not exist or they're too far. I'm going to read some stuff. This is off a website called Wait But Why, which is mm. um, the exact thing I said the night I lost my virginity. So, the Fermi Paradox it says, Everyone feels something when they're in a really good starry place on a really good starry night and they look up and see this. Who wrote this? Was it the same one who wrote Mazzy Star? Was it that one song? <laughs> Some people stick with the traditional feeling struck by that epic beauty or blown away by the insane scale of the universe. Personally, I go for the old existential meltdown followed by acting weird for the next half hour, but everyone feels something. Have you ever felt something when you looked up at the sp- space, like sky?
1: Like yeah. Space. Yeah, well it reminds me when I to answer that question, yeah. I just have to quickly digress to oh, to, to the planetarium that was at one of the high schools in my hometown. Okay. Do I need so, to,
0: hold on, do I need to get snacks? Do we need to, no, to Roku,
1: no, right? no, right. no, it just was like, ah, I was awestruck at, like, it was at the room, how dark the room was, A, mm-hmm. how they were able to project the stars onto the ceiling, B, how the ceiling looked exactly like the sky pretty much because it was a dome, C, and then, like, D, um, how you were able to see the constellations and how they would point them out to you. Mm-hmm. And it was just incredible to me, mm. to my elementary kid mind. Okay. Um, but I don't know, as far as the natural sky at night, I've lived in cities that have been big enough to where i don't see the constellations that much and i don't see i haven't seen a lot of astronomical phenomena like like how recently the northern lights appeared or were visible for a while there and i didn't know anything about that um until people shared about it but then i was like oh i can't stay up that late um (laughs) but
0: yeah, no, I mean, it's important. It's yeah, important. I value
1: my hurt. sleep. You don't yeah. want yeah,
0: northern wines aren't that important. I mean, you got to make sure you get to your job every day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. But I do have part of most of a day off coming up this Friday, oh, so okay. that'll be nice. Yeah. Um, but in any case, yeah, I've been, I have been out in the country where there have been fewer city lights. And it's been really interesting and I really like looking at constellations, but I guess my, my, um, reaction to the seeing the the sky at night would be more like kind of fascination than, than being like scared of it.
0: Yeah. That's how I feel like it's always Mm -hmm. been more of a fascination. Sure. I've never been scared of the sky. Um, I know some people though. I've talked to have actually been kind of scared. I mean, at mm. some, I will say this. I have felt some anxiety when you're all out there all alone by yourself or even with somebody and it's it's pitch black. Like when mm-hmm. you're camping. It's it's really creepy when you're from the city and you're used to like certain noises and there's zero noise. And mm. it's kind of scary a little bit. Um, it's weird. Uh, mm. But I mean, I don't know. It's not that bad. So... Um, this person said, uh, "A really starry sky seems vast, but all we're actually looking at is our very local neighborhood. On the very best nights, we can see about twenty-five hundred stars. Uh, mm-hmm. That's roughly one hundred millionth of the stars in our galaxy.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: And almost all of them are less than a thousand light years away from us, or one percent of the diameter of the Milky Way.
1: <clears throat> wow."
0: Uh, When confronted with the topic of stars and galaxies, a question that tantalizes most humans, is there other intelligent life out there? Let's put some numbers to it. As many stars as there are in our galaxy, 100 to 400 billion, that's what we estimate, there are roughly an equal number of galaxies in the observable universe. So for every star in the colossal Milky Way, there's a whole galaxy out there. Altogether, that comes out to the typically quoted range of, and I'm going to try to say this correctly, but, excuse me, uh, between 10 to the 22nd and 10 to the 24th total stars, which means that for every grain of sand on every beach on Earth, there are 10,000 stars out there.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: The science world isn't in total agreement about what percentage of those stars are sun-like. Opinions typically range from only 5 to 20%. Going with the most conservative side of that 5% and lower end for the number of total stars, 10 to the 22nd power, gives us 500 quintillion or 500 billion, billion sun-like stars. There's also a debate over what percentage of those sun-like stars might be orbited by an Earth-like planet, one with similar temperature conditions that could have liquid water and potentially support life similar to that on Earth. Some mm. say it's high as 50%, but let's go with the more conservative 22 percent that came out of a recent PNAS study, there that suggests there's a potentially habitable Earth-like planet orbiting at least one percent of the total stars in the universe. That means that'd be a total of a hundred billion billion Earth-like planets. Oh so my goodness! There, <laughs> are you okay over there, Peter? Yeah, I'm okay. okay. All right, all right. So there it's are just a, so many. I know there are a hundred Earth-like planets for every grain of sand in the world. Think about that next time you're on the beach. (laughs) Moving forward, we have no choice. Who's doing this podcast, this guy or us? Moving forward, we have no choice but to get completely speculative. Let's imagine that after billions of years in existence, 1% of Earth-like planets develop life. If that's true, every grain of sand would represent one planet with life on it. And imagine that on 1% of those planets, the life advances to an intelligent level like it did here on Earth. That Mm. would mean there were 10 quadrillion or 10 million billion intelligent civilizations in the observable universe. Moving back to just our galaxy and doing the same math on the lowest estimate for stars in the Milky Way, 100 billion, we'd estimate that there are 1 billion Earth-like planets and 100,000 intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. SETI, have you ever heard of SETI? Mm -hmm. Uh, That means the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence is an organization dedicated to listening for signals from other intelligent life. If we're right that there are 100,000 or more intelligent civilizations in our galaxy, and even a fraction of them are sending out radio waves or laser beams or other modes of attempting to contact others, shouldn't SETI's satellite disarray pick up all kinds of signals? But it hasn't. Not one, ever. Where is everybody? Mm. It gets stranger. Our sun is relatively young in the lifespan of the universe. There are far older stars with far older Earth-like planets, which should, in theory, mean civilizations far more advanced than our own. As an example, let's compare our 4.54 billion-year-old Earth to a hypothetical 8 billion-year-old Planet X. Hmm. If Planet X, I feel like I'm in a college class, has a similar story to Earth... Yeah. Uh, they they go ahead and they show some di- diagrams here. They talk about where let's look at where the civilization would be today, and kind of talking about like where we would start, where we would where they started. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. skip down. The technology and knowledge of a civilization only a thousand years ahead of us could be as shocking to us as our world would be to a medieval person.
1: Mm-hmm. A civilization
0: one million years ahead of us might be as incomprehensible to us as human culture is to chimpanzees. And Planet Mm -hmm. X is 3.4 billion years ahead of us. There is something called the Kardashev Scale. You ever heard of that? No. Uh, It actually helps us group intelligent civilizations into three broad categories by the amount of energy they use. So there's a Type 1 civilization. That has the ability to use all of the energy on their planet. We're not quite a Type 1 civilization, but we are close. Uh, Carl Sagan created a formula for the scale, which puts us at a Type 0.7 civilization a type 2 civilization can harness all of the energy of their host star our feeble type 1 brains can hardly imagine how someone would do this but we've tried Mm. our best imagining things like a Dyson sphere which a Dyson sphere basically uses I'm going to just go off what I can remember but I think it uses like the power of a star to give a whole planet power Mm. so yeah um, we there is also a Type Three civilization that blows the other two away, accessing com- power comparable to that of the entire Milky Way galaxy. If this level of advancement sounds hard to believe, remember Planet X above and their 3.4 billion years of further development. If a civilization on Planet X were similar to ours and were able to survive all the way to Type Three level, the natural mm-hmm. thought is that they would have pro- that they probably have mastered interstellar travel by now possibly even colonizing the entire galaxy. One hypothesis Mm. as to how galactic colonization could happen is by creating machinery that can travel to other planets, spend 500 years or so self-replicating using the raw materials on their new planet, and then send two replicas off to do the same thing. Even without traveling anywhere near the speed of light, this process would colonize the whole galaxy in 3.75 million years. A Mm. relative blink of an eye when talking about Talking on the scale of billions of years. Uh, there is a Type 4 civilization. That's where you okay. harness all the power of Donald Trump's tweets. And you can actually power the entire <laughs> planet. Uh, all the rage. Um, hashtag own the lives continuing to, continuing to speculate if 1% of intelligent life survives long enough to become a potentially galaxy colonizing Type 3 civilization our calculations above suggests there should be at least a thousand Type 3 civilizations in our galaxy alone. And given the power of such a civilization, their presence would likely be pretty noticeable. And yet, we see nothing, we hear nothing, and we're visited by nobody. So where is everybody? Welcome to the Fermi Paradox. We have no answer to the Fermi Paradox. The best we can do is possible explanations. And if you ask ten different scientists what their hunch is about the correct one, you'll get 10 different answers. Mm. You know when you hear about humans of the past debating whether the Earth was round, or if the sun revolved around the Earth, Mm -hmm. or think that lightning happened because of Zeus, they seem so primitive and in the dark. That's about where we are with this topic. In taking Mm -hmm. a look at some of the most discussed possible explanations for the Fermi Paradox, let's divide them into two broad categories. Those explanations, which assume there's no sign of Type 2 and Type 3 civilizations because there's none of them out there and those which assume they're out there and we're not seeing or hearing anything for other reasons. Mm. Uh, So explanation group one, there are no signs of higher civilizations, type two and three, because there are no higher civilizations in existence. Those who subscribe to group one explanations point to something called the non-exclusivity problem, which rebuffs any theory that says there are higher civilizations, but none of them have made any kind of contact with us because they all blank. Group 1 people look at the math, which says there should be so many thousands or millions of higher civilizations that at least one of them would be an exception to the rule. Even if a theory Mm -hmm. held for 99.99% of higher civilizations, the other 0.01% would behave differently and we'd become aware of their existence. Mm -hmm. Therefore, say Group 1, explanations, it must be that there are no super advanced civilizations, And since the math suggests that there are thousands of them just in our own galaxy, something else must be going on. That is called the Great Filter. The Great Filter theory Mm. says, are you okay? Is your brain fried? No. Okay. No. Are you paying attention? Yeah. There will be a small test after this. Okay. Okay. I'm kidding. The Great Filter theory says that at some point from pre-life to type 3 intelligence, there's a wall. That all or nearly all attempts at life hit. There at some Mm. stage in the long evolutionary process that is extremely unlikely or impossible for life to get beyond, that stage is the great filter. If this theory is true, the big question is where in the timeline does the great filter occur? It turns out, when it comes to the fate of humankind, this question is very important. Depending on where the great filter occurs, we're left with three possibilities. being. We're rare, or first, or we're in a lot of trouble. uh That's not the word they used, but I'm not going to say the word because mm. uh, maybe a child might listen in. So uh one is we're rare, and that the great filter is behind us. One hope we have is that the great filter is behind us. We manage to surpass it, which would mean it's extremely rare for life to make it to our level of intelligence. Which I don't know if that's true. If you've been downtown. There's not a lot of intelligent life out there. The <laughs> diagram below shows only two species making it past, and we're one of them. This scenario would explain why there are no Type 3 civilizations, but it also mean that we could be one of the few exceptions now that we've made it this far. It would mean we have hope. On the surface, this sounds a bit like people 500 years ago, suggesting that the Earth is the center of the universe. It implies that we're special. However, something scientists call observation selection effect, suggests that anyone who is pondering their own rarity is inherently part of an intelligent life, success story, and whether they're actually rare or quite common, the thoughts they ponder and conclusions they draw will be identical. This forces us to admit that being special is at least a possibility. And if we are special, what? when exactly did we become special? I.e., which step did we surpass that almost everyone got stuck on? One mm-hmm. possibility the Great Filter could be at the very beginning. It might be incredibly unusual for life to begin at all. This is a candidate because it took about a billion years of Earth's existence to finally happen, and because we have tried extensively to replicate that event in labs and have never been able to do it. If this is indeed the Great Filter, it would mean that not only there is no intelligent life out there, there may be no other life at all. Another possibility... Oh, man. Another possibility? The Great Filter could be the jump from a simple... I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, Procureate cell to the complex Curate cell. Basically talking about cells growing. Um, mm. And then um, part two, it says we're the first. For group one thinkers, if the great filter is not behind us, the one hope we have is that conditions in the universe are just recently, for the first time since the Big Bang, reaching a place that would allow intelligent life to develop. In that case... We, and many other species, may be on our way to superintelligence, and it simply hasn't happened yet. We happen to be here at the right time to become one of the first superintelligent civilizations. One example of a phenomenon that could make this realistic is the prevalence of gamma ray bursts, insanely huge explosions that we've observed in distant galaxies. Mm. In the same way it took the early Earth a few hundred million years Before the asteroids and volcanoes died down and life became possible, it could be the first chunk of the universe's existence was full of cataclysmic events, like gamma-ray bursts, that would incinerate everything nearby from time to time and prevent any life from developing past a certain stage. Now perhaps we're in the midst of an astrobiological phase transition, and this is the first time any life has been able to evolve for this long interrupted. Mm. Um, If we're neither rare nor early, Group 1 thinkers conclude that the great filter is going to be in our future this would suggest that life regularly evolves to where we are but that something prevents life from going much further and reaching high intelligence in almost all cases and we're unlikely to be an exception one possible future great filter is a regularly occurring cataclysmic natural event like the above mentioned gamma ray burst except they're unfortunately not done yet and it's just a matter of time before all life on earth is suddenly wiped out by ...one one by one. Another candidate is the possible inevitability that nearly all intelligent civilizations end up destroying themselves once a certain level of technology is reached. This mm. is why Oxford University philosopher Nick Bostrom says that no news is good news. <laughs> uh, the discovery of even simple life on Mars would be devastating because it would cut out a number of potential great filters behind us. And if we mm. were to find fossilized, complex life on Mars... It would be far the worst news ever printed on a newspaper cover because it would mean the gray filter is almost definitely ahead of us, ultimately mm. dooming the species. Um, Boston believes that it, when it comes to the Fermi Paradox, the silence of the night sky is golden. And I'm not going to keep reading this. Mm. Uh, we can always do it for the next podcast because there's quite a bit to cover because there's sure. also group type 2 and type 3 and... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, did you did you understand any of that? Did I is that the way it's written? Do you feel like your brain is like an omelet and you're just cooked?
1: Um, a Peter this noodle? is your brain. This is, this your, is brain. your brain on drugs. This is your brain on science. Yeah, this is your brain on science. Any questions? Yeah. Um, no, I I could grasp that. It was written in pretty like everyday language. Mm-hmm. Um layman's terms so to speak the only thing that i would differ with is like the evolutionary assumptions it makes about the earth's age and the age of the universe and the big bang theory but i'm not gonna go off on that soapbox right now but that being that a lot of it hinges on that Mm. it it makes it difficult to like um put stock in the rest of it as because it's cantilevered or like supported by this evolutionary science that may or may not be accurate um so yeah that's my thoughts so far
0: why do you hate science Peter? No, I'm kidding. um no i i i agree i myself like we're both believers uh some believers believe that uh, evolution and creationism work hand in hand uh, mm-hmm. I, I know one personally they're not dumb people. Um, it's certainly an interesting idea. I do mm. not think they do. I also think that... Excuse me. I don't want to burp in the microphone. By the way, this podcast is sponsored by Drecker. Okay. Mm. We, we're having the locker beer. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, not it's
1: called I Don't Know No Snakes, mm. Drecker Brewing Company, Fargo, Fargo Nodak. North Dakota.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... I. The thing that most scientists don't want to think about or consider is that, okay, so let's just say pretend there is a God. And God mm-hmm. created everything. Because uh, I had this conversation with somebody recently. Mm. We were talking about aliens. And we were talking about how I pointed out that um, in one of the podcasts that the aliens obviously knew what they were doing to Whitley Striever, they were hurting him. And. That, to me, shows a sign of intelligent life. They knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to keep him quiet. And they were doing everything in secrecy. uh, Which could, in my mind, say, well, judging by what I perceive, it's wrong. It's, as the Bible would say, sin. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear the word Bible. Uh, And I I don't... I don't... Okay, I'll say this about the Bible. Like, the Bible, to me, is the Word of God. Um, Mm -hmm. The Bible... And I've told people this too. It shouldn't be used as a textbook for anything else, I believe, than telling the story of Jesus Christ and his death um, and paying for our sins and instructing Christians on how to live their life. Beyond Mm. that, it starts to get much weaker because Mm -hmm. people try to use the Bible as a history textbook or they try to use the Bible as a medical textbook. And it's like, Mm. no, you can't. I mean, yes, you might get some things in there, right? But that doesn't mean that you need to use that as a medical textbook, and it was never designed to be. Right? It was, it was translated by hundreds of people. It was it was moved down through hundreds of years. Um, uh-huh. and this this thing they actually had to come up with words that had not been invented yet, because the Hebrew language doesn't have them. You know, so uh-huh. so you shouldn't be relying on that for that. So there's also people. That and this has been something in my mind. I've thought about a lot, but there's also people who believe uh, you either a take the Bible. I guess there's three schools of thought. You take the Bible completely literally, you take the Bible literally and metaphorically, and Mm -hmm. then you take the Bible completely metaphorically. I would say Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle. Yeah, Um, me too. I think there's some certain like literal parts, and I think there's certain metaphorical parts. The problem is like you kind of have to pick and choose, Um, right? And you have to use your best judgment. Uh, that's the scary part. So, it's, it's kind of tough because some people are going to say everything's literal. And, like, to me, I think God could have used evolution if he wanted to. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think he did, but he could have. Right. Um, I could certainly, if I had to, I could certainly build a theory that says that God tells Moses to write down, because Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, uh, tells Moses to write down, um, The whole segments of okay so god breathed life into man and there was a fruit and the serpent and all this was all this was put in plain language so that the agrarian societies that lived uh up until like the industrial revolution could understand that i can certainly make a case for that and say that well god's using that language and they wanted to use that language so people could even understand the bible um, mm. And who knows? I mean, what if there's things that are in there that we don't know about? And there probably is uh, things that are in there that we're not told, and we're just we don't know about. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also um, the concept of something called the gap theory. Okay. That.
1: Um, I don't recall what um, that is.
0: It's basically, I think it's like there's a gap in between like Genesis one and Genesis two, or in between the verse two. But there's oh, like a period where yeah. you, you could stick anything in that gap. You could say evolution happened in that gap. You could say all kinds of stuff happened. We don't know. That's the problem. And that's, sure. that's okay. That's one thing I really like about God. He doesn't tell you everything. God doesn't have to tell you everything. Like that's a weird mm-hmm. thing that people really can't seem to understand is that God and us are not on the same level like God's not your mm. equal God's not your friend, I mean he is your friend but he's not like your good buddy down at the bar you know, he's not, he mm-hmm. doesn't tell you everything, he's not your wife or your husband, mm-hmm. um, he's the creator of the universe and he desires to have a good relationship with you, a loving relationship, but yeah, he doesn't have to tell you stuff you know, and and right. I think that's partly what helps humanity is that trigger of curiosity, that spark of curiosity yeah. Um so anyway though. Uh thoughts, Peter.
1: Um Yeah, well I know that it says in the Bible that with God a thousand years are like one day and yeah. one day are like a thousand is like a thousand and years.
0: I, and I've heard that somebody say that's metaphorical.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. But
0: <laughs> but then I've heard people say it's literal. Yeah. So I don't know.
1: So know. it could be it could be both yeah. if we're both since we're both in a, on the yeah. side of, or in the middle on that. Yeah. um, I would say I am. uh,
0: This this podcast feels like a thousand years whenever we <laughs> record it. But go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Peter. Uh,
1: I so that could support the gap theory. Yeah. But that verse or whatever well, they use it to. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, well, and then at the same time, it just, Alexander has a good point, you know, that um, the Bible, doesn't God doesn't have to tell us everything, so he wouldn't have to tell us if there were other forms of life necessarily, because we wouldn't be able to comprehend it, just like we can't really comprehend heaven, for example. Yeah, or eternity yeah or the concept of eternity or the concept of the trinity being there for since ages past and yeah. forever in the in the forever past or whatever the term is um um from eternity past well anyway um so in any case that these are all interesting ideas and i i just get a little bit skeptical about the part we were reading from the website about all this stuff hinging on these evolutionary ideas but yeah that's just a personal thing
0: well i mean my thing is i was talking to somebody and they were like well so okay let's just say there's god and why is my microphone always quieter (laughs) i'm looking at the sound thing yeah you're always louder than me Mm. what is wrong with america but, uh, <laughs> anyway, but uh yeah, so I'm, like, trying to be as loud as possible in this microphone. But I was talking to somebody, and they were talking about that, and they were saying that, so God created all these aliens, so does that mean that if the aliens are experimenting on us, uh, that they're committing sins? And if they're committing sins, do they have their own hell? Or are they going to hell, too? Uh, does mm. that mean that somebody has to die on the cross in their world to pay for their sins, okay? Because that's a tight schedule, Jesus, all right? Every 33 years, you're going to have to be doing a lot of dying. Um, I don't know, because the one thing that uh, we do know about angels is that they marvel at certain things Mm -hmm. that we as people seem to be fine with and i don't know if they have souls like us so Mm. uh, and and that's me building off of my own theories on the bible so it's almost as flimsy as the evolution theories Mm. so what i'm trying to say is we don't know anything all right yeah (laughs) yeah let's wrap this podcast up it was brought to you by blue apron No, (laughs) but uh so yeah it's it's certainly interesting to think about i don't know um nobody really knows uh, that's the problem. Um, yeah. Uh, that's why some people try to say, well, so the aliens are demons. I don't think the aliens are demons. I mean, you could try to say they were, um, but I don't think they are. I think they're intelligent beings. Uh, I believe that there are intelligent beings. I choose to say that since God is a creator, I'm and I believe in God, um, that he likes to create different things. And right. And we have no freaking clue what those things are going through. So, as right. I brought up the, a point to that person, I said, well, it was a certain point that Jesus Christ came to earth to pay for everyone's sins. Mm-hmm. But before that, they just had to, basically people had to trust in God and find favor and grace in his eyes. Mm. And who's to say that those creatures can't do the same thing? You know, mm. Who's to say that? I don't yeah. know. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to be worshipping next to an alien. All right, that's all, I'm <laughs> say. All right. Um, that's all I'm trying to say. So, uh, yeah, can you believe I did pass Bible College? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that well,
1: you, know you, uh, well, I'm not gonna ruin this joke before. No, no. I'm gonna back out of that before I, before I ruin it.
0: That's really good. You should do that. Um, so, uh, anyway, though, so yeah, no, I, I did. not but uh, it wasn't because of this. So when we last left off, (laughs) the author, Whitley Strieber, has realized that he may have been abducted by alien beings. Mm. In doing so, he does say that he uh, feels violated because of this. And because of his feelings, he chooses to visit a hypnotist. Uh, Bud Hopkins is the hypnotist that he goes to see. Mm. And then under hypnosis, he admits that he has seen visitors, as he calls them, uh, he also starts to admit that they experiment on him. And mm-hmm. uh, you and I talked about this, right? Yeah. We were sitting in my car. Yeah. and uh, Which is a great time to talk about alien abduction in the dark. Yeah. In your car. I mean, it wasn't that bad, was it? Did you sleep that
1: night? Um, I did sleep that night. It was a little bit freaky. I was thinking about it this past weekend. Oh, really? Um, about how he was missing time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I was thinking about it as I, like, was falling asleep, I think, and stuff, mm. and just, it was really freaky, um, well, maybe we'll get into that, but basically, uh, to relay one of the anecdotes from the book quickly, um, he starts having these, experiencing these things where he's, quote, missing time, yeah. where he, he realized that, time is passing but he doesn't know where it went or where yeah. he was or what he was doing during that time and then he sees these signs that like it did actually pass like the clock changing yeah. or like his food getting cold but then him feeling like his feeling like nothing no time elapsed yeah during those times
0: that's exactly how i feel when we do our podcast <laughs> like it's like i'm like wait a second. Two hours went by, and we did absolutely nothing of no importance. That's amazing. So, uh, <laughs> two weeks after his last hypnosis session, uh, he does return to the cabin where he was abducted. Uh, he starts questioning why he goes through his apartment or his house and opening his closets. He opens his closets, and he looks under his bed. And oh. he starts wondering, why am I looking under my bed at midnight? Uh, which is what I always do. You don't look under your bed at midnight? <laughs> Um, I don't, um, but, uh, by the way, have you ever had an incident where you were missing time? No. I don't think I've ever had one. Yeah. I, I, I can't say I've ever had anything weird happen to I me mean, like that. I've never had, like, an alien, like, abduction. I will say, I don't know if I told you this, but, uh, really quick, um, when I was a kid, because I mentioned last time we were talking about this, my mom would listen to a show called Coast to Coast, and they mm-hmm. talk about aliens. So that was on my mind as a little kid, which is probably not a good thing you want your kid to think about. But uh, happy Mother's Day, I'm just gonna throw <laughs> that in there. But uh, yeah, but uh, I was thinking about aliens because my mom had talked to me about them, and they were talking about alien abductions on coast to coast. It was late at night. It was in Texas. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, mm-hmm. I was sitting in my bed, and I remember this is really actually very terrifying. Um, I was sitting in my bed, and you're thinking about aliens. And then I look over, because my bed was against the wall, and then the opposite of my bed was a window. And we're on, like, the third floor. So Mm -hmm. there's the second floor. And we're in apartments. And all of a sudden, this super bright light comes into the window. And I'm like, oh my god. It's happening. It's happening right now. And I'm Mm -hmm. so scared. I mean, I don't know how scared you've ever been in your life, but if you saw something Mm -hmm. like that, that just would scare you senseless like you are it is something that you're just like how do I describe it it's like you're paralyzed in fear because you're. Mm-hmm. it's like hearing about vampires or hearing about a, a werewolf and then you see it coming towards you and it's like oh my god this is real and so it's a mm-hmm. super bright light come shining through the window mm-hmm. and I was like this I guess I'm I'm going I guess I'm going right now <laughs> alright like this is the only travel i be able to get in as a young millennial boy so because my generation can't afford to see the world so. um and then the light was gone and uh i called my mom like mom like there's a light and it shined in my window and i just talked to my mom about this like on mother's day and i said do you remember that and she's like yeah i remember that what well, was a police officer for some reason oh, right. he had his spotlight pointed i don't know why in people's windows at, like, midnight. I don't know why he was doing that. And it's the second story. Like, was he looking for Spider-Man? Like, <laughs> I don't get it. But uh, anyway, though, so uh, I've never had an incident where I felt like I was missing time. I've never had, yeah. like, one of those. I've thought about it for a long time. Like, did, did I ever have that, or have I forgotten about that? I can't think I've ever had an episode, excuse me, like he had, or the episodes yeah. he's had where... I was missing time. I never, I've never known anybody that's ever said that either.
1: Right. The only caveat to that I will make is that when I got really drunk one time, um, I totally blacked out and didn't remember things that had happened during that time. But that's, I think, a common occurrence. Yeah, so, a common occurrence. Yeah.
0: That's uh, we like to call that North Dakota induction. Kind <laughs> of by bush light. Um, so. Uh yeah, he starts questioning why he does that and then he questions why he's always looking for something small in the closets and beds. He oh, looks in his bedroom so at the freaky. door and he notices an indentation and he can't tell if the humans did it or if, you know, the visitors did it. You know, that like the door's been slammed open. And he's oh just like, Wait, did gosh. he do that? Or did someone else do that? So, he sits on his chair, and he watches his, re- his reflection in the TV, and his mind starts drifting to the uh, vivid hypnosis ses- sessions. Um, he starts to feel, um, when he's doing the hypnosis, he starts to feel the rush of trees below him as he's lifted very fast above them, and his mind shifts to being on their vessel or their ship. He's <laughs> This is so weird. He, sel- he smells a smell. He says, like, warm cheddar cheese mixed with sulfur. So I guess these aliens like Cheetos. I don't know what's going on, but uh they do. Uh he says there's this discarded coverall lying partly on a bench next to him and then there's a, mm. a, a visitor or an alien or whatever uh sitting in front of him that he just knows is female. Um he doesn't know why, but he just knows it's a female. And I'm just gonna read part of the book here. Okay. quick so uh, this is from the book so I wondered that night in the cabin if it was the sheer impact of the experience that had fixed the image of this being so vividly in my mind or had communion somehow come alive within me and was she still here in some sense watching even as I sat before my fire as I remembered her I found myself filling with a formless question groping for what it was that perplexed me I recalled an exchange that now came to seem very important. I'd had a very distinct impression of her, that she was old. Not just aged, like an elderly person, but really old. Why had I felt this? I could not be sure. I Mm. still remember her voice, soft, coming from I know not where, answering me, yes, I'm old. When she spoke in my head, there was a lilting quality to it, but when she used her voice, it was startlingly deep to be coming from so slight a creature. It was, more like a, it was more than a base. It sounded like it was booming out from the depths of a cave. I remember oh my, my protest gosh. to her when she reassured me about the operation not hurting me. The sense of helplessness was an awful thing to contemplate, and he said, you have no right. And then she said, we do have a right. Five enormous words, stunning words, we do have a right. Who gave it to them? By what progress of ethics had they arrived at that conclusion? I wondered if it required debate or seemed so obvious to them they had never questioned it. The fire before me sputtered. I opened the vent on the stove and it obediently flared up again. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, head to another note.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> Are you okay, Peter? No. Okay, that's all right. So this is weird. He has some things he starts saying and he starts talking about when he was a kid. And because uh, he starts thinking about um, When he was a child And uh, He said That um, uh, He grew up in a Catholic church and stuff But mm. I'm just going to read here I do not recall thinking or talking at all about Extraterrestrials However when I recently asked a friend of those days What was the strangest experience He could remember I was surprised To find that his answer involved me At the time I had asked him the question, he had not in any way been exposed to this material. Here is the story he recounted. When we were 13, I apparently announced to him that Spacemen had taught me how to build an anti-gravity machine, which I was constructing in my bedroom. This was in the summer of 1958. I do not remember the genesis of this machine, but I do remember building it. There was no magic to the thing, it was only an assembly of electromagnets taken from old motors. The supposed anti-gravity effect... Was based on a principle of counter rotation. When I plugged my assemblage in, there was a great buzzing. The electromagnetic magnet in the core of the thing whirled madly, and the lights in the house began to pulsate. The whole thing whined and fluttered. There were showers of sparks. Parental cries of alarm rose from downstairs. As the machine destroyed itself, the pulsation of the house lights became dimming, until the bulbs glowed orange red. Then they burst a blazing life. A good number of them blowing out in the process. Finally I managed to pull the plug Rather than tell my parents what had happened I rushed downstairs and pretended ignorance I did not need to pretend fright The friend reports that I called him in great anxiety And said that I was afraid that the spacemen were mad Because I had disturbed their power field Mm. Um, And then he talks about how there's He's discovered a mythology of flying saucers And a lot of it revolves around the concept of counter-rotating magnets Um, Wow Yeah So, uh, one among the other people I have met who have remembered being taken tells an interesting story. He knows a man, another victim, who was given detailed instructions about how to build a motor of this sort. The man was given the instructions during an abduction experience during the 50s and claims he was told he wouldn't remember a thing until 1985 when he suddenly found his mind full of ritually detailed plans. Um, Then he says, not having seen these plans, I cannot evaluate them other than to comment that the idea that counter rotating counter rotating magnets of any kind would produce any unusual energies at all flies in the face of modern magnetic theory. But he claims that when he built this device, all the metal objects in his barn were instantly pulled toward it, and he was knocked out by a flying automobile engine. The next day, the barn burned to the ground in an unexplained fire. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, oh he does my say. Gosh. Uh, I don't really think that details like the construction of a motor can be part of some shared hallucinatory system. Recall that I did not even remember my anti-gravity machine myself, but rather was told about it by a friend who remembered. My machine was built in 1958. More than 20 years later, this other man seems to have built a more exact version of the same thing, allegedly based on plans obtained in the same period. The day after I built my device, I do remember being seized with the fierce urge to get away from the house. I went to my grandmother's country home with her, even though the occasion was one of her afternoon card parties. About four, four, the telephone at the country house rang. I can remember my grandmother saying, house burned down, Mary Streber's house burned down. The blood just drained from me. Fortunately, the entire house had not burned. Only the roof over the wing containing my bedroom. The fire was never satisfactorily explained, although I have a feeling that it was related more to the effect a little boy's anti-gravity machine. It had on the wiring into the hostility of annoying visitors. Right. Um. So, <clears throat> excuse me. He talks a little about a train, and I, I'm not going to get into the whole train thing because there's basically another, um, like episode. Episode. Uh, he talks about how before he sees them, sometimes like he'll see an owl. Um and there's a movie you might have heard. Uh, I I won't watch the movie because I'm terrified of aliens. But uh, mm. it's called The Fourth Kind, and I remember that was I the trailers and stuff, and it's all made up. Uh, it's all like you mm. know, bunch of people go missing from Alaska every year, and like obviously, sure, some people go missing from Alaska, but not the way the movie is uh, doing it. But um, one of the things in the movie they talk about is they have like a. It seems kind of stupid now because I've seen the clips and stuff, but there's like an owl sitting on a fence and whatever. People see that. You know, they'll see an owl, and it's like almost like a screen um, image. And he starts talking about how he saw an owl during the events of 1968. Um, Mm. And it was first blocked by the recollection of the owl when uh, his December 26th incident happened. He says, I note in passing that if my wise and determined friend from afar as a woman. It could be said that her personal symbol was an owl. Athena's symbol was the owl. The Latin word for owl is strix, which also means witch. It was thought in earliest times to embody the wisdom of Ishtar, the ancient Mesopotamian eye goddess with the huge staring eyes. The owl was also the totem of the Celtic blue the triple goddess of the moon, and is associated with the notion of the trinity, which will emerge later in this book as the most common symbolic structure of the visitors. Uh, Mentioned by many people who have been taken. People have no idea at all of its ancient importance, which has now declined to the dusty precincts of antiquarians and mythologists. So, um, let me just uh, go to another note here in this book. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, okay. So, um, he does talk about his um, father and stuff, but he says under hypnosis, this is another session Uh, Mm -hmm. by the way, if you want to listen to these sessions, they are all on YouTube, so if you want to listen to him as he recounts these things you can actually listen, the audio isn't amazing but you can make out what he's saying it's not like he's screaming all the time and terrified, it's weird I, I heard like just a few seconds um, and I was just like, oh my no.
1: goodness. Okay,
0: like it it's sounds like a normal person talking. Under hypnosis, the fear went through me like ice water in my veins. It is fortunate for Don Klein and Bud Hopkins that I was under the suggestion suggestion uh, not to scream because they would have heard terrible screaming. I am afraid as it was, the sensations seemed to explode through me. Um, for a moment, I thought I was fainting. I remembered that as a little boy, I just shrivelled up inside to see my father. In such an extremity of terror, because he talks about the uh, train deal um, and how basically another visitor uh, abduction happens. I'm just gonna back up a page. It says that um, uh, that he he wakes up and there's like a bunch of soldiers and they're like laying on tables. And uh, but then it says. He saw, he has like a voice in his head, it's like one of these things, and he says, Then I saw the sight that has brought me more fear than any other so far. My father was standing near my sister in blue pajamas. His arms dangling at his sides, on his face a look of surprise. Then his eyes moved until they rested on something I could not see very well, because it was invisible beside the doorway. Almost in slow motion, his face simply broke up. He threw his head back, and something like an electric shock seemed to go through him, making him spread his fingers and shake his arms. His eyes bulged and his mouth flew open. There, Then he was screaming, but I could only hear it faintly, a muffled shrieking full of terror and despair. And, um...
1: Oh he, my goodness.
0: He, uh, he talks about, like, the creature that, um... It says, that the awful-looking creature now came to seem absolutely monstrous. There's no question in my mind about it being real. It had never even crossed my mind that I might be dreaming. This was as real as any other event in my life, despite the fact it was far more frightening even than the most frightening horror movie, it would soon disappear in amnesia. As a matter of fact, it would be another year or so before I would see my first horror movie, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which was shown at my summer camp. I remained at that camp exactly one day, it was later that my interest in horror stories began. And he starts talking a little bit more about the uh, Twilight Zone and just different stuff he watched when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. But uh, he says, uh, talking about what we were reading before, um, it's fortunate for Don Klein and Bud Hopkins that he was under the suggestion not to scream. He says, I remembered that as a little boy I just shriveled up inside to see my father in such an extremity of terror. In those days he was very much my hero. I tried to talk to him to reassure him that it was all right. But he gasped and said, It's not all right, witty. It's not alright, and tried to make a grab for me and my sister. His arms just came up and hung in the air while he writhed and his face worked. When he started screaming again, he became muffled. Uh, They watched this, being the visitors, with their steady eyes like huge black jewels. The closest thing I've been able to find to an unadorned image of these things is not from some modern science fiction movie. It is rather the age-old glaring face of Ishtar. Paint her eyes entirely black, remove her hair, there is it my image, as it hangs before me now, in my mind's eye. And the ancient and terrible one, the bringer of wisdom, the ruthless questioner. Um,
1: oh my goodness.
0: Um, let's see, and then this is, he talks about the 60s and 70s. Uh, thoughts, Peter? You...
1: This is really scary.
0: It, I mean, it kind of is, uh, I don't know why my Kindle, I accidentally just pressed the button. It kind of is scary. I mean, the good thing is, is that, uh, from what I heard about the whole alien thing we talked about is that you really can't like manifest them. Right. Like aliens abduct me. I mean, people have tried that, but it just doesn't work. Right. Um, so it says, um, what my life had really been and how many other lives had been lived like mine. Skidding the surface of this dark mirror, I wondered in early 1986 if a couple of recent strange events might have some relevance to this inquiry into the past. During the third week of March, I had a very peculiar thing happen to me. Sometime in the night of March 21st at the cabin, I awoke and found myself unable to move or even to open my eyes. I had the distinct impression that there was something in my left nostril and that it was being slowly moved up far up my nose. When I tried to struggle, I heard a pop like an apple crunching between my eyes. The next next thing I remembered, it was morning. I noticed during the day that my nose hurt. There was a little bleeding, but as my wife and son had reported similar injuries, without the memory of something being in their noses the week before, I assumed it was the result of a head cold and dry winter air. But I never came down with a cold. After March 15th, they both had episodes of nasal bleeding and little knots in their nostrils. Specifically, Anne had a knot in the top of her right nostril, my son in his left. I now developed one in my left nostril. Theirs had gone away without incident, but mine bothered me, and I made an appointment with my doctor to get my injury examined. <sighs> he looked at it on March 26th and diagnosed it as a scratch to the nasal mucosa that had led to the formation of the knot. And then uh, he directly period- predicted it would subside on its own over a period of days. And then... Um,
1: Oh my gosh.
0: He received a letter from Donald Klein, and Donald Klein, this is J- July 26th, mentioned that many of the symptoms were consistent with an abnormal abnormality in the temporal lobe, and that the method of testing this involves a nasal probe. So, uh, people with temporal lobe epilepsy report deja vu, unexplained panic states, strong smells, and even a preoccupation with philosophical, philosophical, <laughs> philosophical and cosmic journeys. They also sometimes report vivid, hallucinatory journeys. So, mm. uh, that's another note. Uh, I'm just going to walk through... Um, let's see. Uh, so, he talks a little bit about the... You and I talked about this. Um, mm-hmm. The friend in him. And... Uh, it says, At the age of nine, I've been sleeping out with a friend on a lovely Texas summer night when something woke us up in the wee hours. Perhaps an owl killing a rat. <laughs> which is just such a happy thing to think about. Texas, <laughs> we're really Australia. The stopping of the crickets, or moonset. In any case, we found ourselves awake and deliciously alone in the dark. Which is, by the way, the creepiest sentence I've ever read in my life. <laughs> deliciously <laughs> alone in the dark, Peter. We went exploring the quiet slips of the night Through our familiar places The wide lawns and tangled bushes All transformed by shadows into a new world The vacant lot behind our house Was then an acre of tall sunflowers Taller than either of us boys We were wandering through these stocks We heard someone coming towards us My friend turned and ran I stood there then turned and ran as well When I reached our sleeping bags I was astonished to find him already So completely asleep That I could not wake him up How could he have gone from running in terror to being dead to all the world like that? And why was he still outside at all? Why hadn't he gone running into the house? Again, our behavior was totally at variance with our experience. He and I also saw a huge object cross the sky one summer night, an event that I've always remembered as particularly strange. I called him after a lapse of 25 years. We talked for some time. Then I asked about those two nights. I told him nothing specific about my other experiences, nor did I discuss visitors the first memory, he said, we were probably just scared by a dog. He had this to say about the second. Oh, yes, I remember that thing. It was huge, and it looked like, well, it was a strange-looking, and there was a black car. I remember that, too. Immediately after the object passed overhead, an old black car, showing no lights went racing down Elizabeth Road in the same direction that the object had gone. Were these descriptions of events as they had happened or screen memories? Perhaps, if great care is taken, a method can be devised of finding an answer to such questions. A method more reliable than hypnosis. I also recall flying with some people over the roofs of the neighborhood in a thing like a rubber raft and waking up on more than one okay, one morning with bits of grass and twigs in my bed as if I had been abroad in the night. Um, oh my God! And then I think we had talked about this. There wasn't anything else even that specific except for a memory. I'm sorry, I try not to laugh. Of a terrifying round object hanging in some forgotten babyhood sky and seeing a crowd of big gray monkeys coming up across the hillside. This took place in my grandmother's country home when I was about two, which would have been the summer of 47. Um,
1: Wow.
0: This is where it gets a little weird. From the night at age nine to an event in Austin in September 1967. There were few specific recollections Except those that emerged under hypnosis And none was clear By 1967, I was attending the University of Texas In the last week of August I had just rented a new studio, studio apartment And moved back to Austin from San Antonio For the semester When I now had an experience uh, I now understand to have been known What is, uh, what is known as Missing time experience mm-hmm. Lasting at least 24 hours I moved into the apartment the day before and was sitting on the couch about noon, eating a TV dinner when I was confused to discover that the dinner seemed to have hopped from my lap onto the coffee table and had gone cold. Now I wonder if there might not have been a period of missing time at that point. I remember getting up to reheat the food and noticing it was already 2 p.m. I decided I had fallen asleep while eating. I put the TV dinner in the oven and turned on the timer to heat it for 15 minutes. Then I turned back to the oven to check the temperature setting. I was suddenly woozy, my mouth dry, and the sun was going down outside. The dinner was cold again, and I had and have no memory of how the intervening hours had passed. I got scared, deciding I had been the victim of blackouts, and tried to make a phone call for help. It was midnight by the oven clock when I put my hand on the phone. There was no discontinuous memory at all, no sense of being unconscious. One moment the timer showed a little after six, and the sky outside the kitchen window was glowing. Then I moved toward the phone, and the timer showed midnight, and the sky was black. It was exactly as if six hours had somehow passed in less than a second. I then began trying to make my way out of the dark apartment. I was terrified. I shook with fear, and I was so so thirsty I could barely stand it. The next thing I knew, I was in front of the sink. The water was running running into a full glass. My watch said 4.15. I rushed out the door of the apartment and found myself in the cool of a Texas pre-dawn. At this point, I remembered something of an awesome beauty taking place in the sky, which I later told friends must have been a display of the perceived meteor shower, which was not active then, but had been in early August. I drove to an all-night restaurant called the Nighthawk on Guadalupe Street and had a huge breakfast of toast, eggs, bacon, cereal, coffee, and at least six glasses of orange juice. Um, When I described this singular 24 hours to Jim Kinetka, who is good at coining words, he invented a name for my state. He called it a Larkonic Trance. For years, we have laughed about the Larkonic Trance, but I'm not laughing anymore. There is no evidence that I suffer from any malfunction of the brain, and I was as sane then as I am now. Some weeks later, there was a frightening sequel. I was lying in bed at my grandmother's house in San Antonio, reading Time magazine. Have you been to San Antonio? No. It's, uh, it's not a bad area. Uh, it's kind of dirty, though, like dusty. Okay. Um, it was uh, the, I just went to the Alamo. It was late at That's night, true. and I was about to go to sleep. In those days, I used to stay with my grandmother. When I went to San Antonio, because my brother, then a teenager, had effectively taken over my old room in my home. Lying in that bed, wide awake, I had an experience so strange and frightening that I remember it to this day with total clarity. I was suddenly transported back in time and back to Austin a few weeks earlier. I leaped into my car and backed out of the apartment house parking lot. It was night, and the windows of the car were closed. I couldn't see out at all. In fact, I could see nothing but the reflection of the inside of the car. I was so blind that I was forced to stop. Something approached the car. I was frightened to see, peering in the window, with its face pressed almost to the glass, what seemed to be almost a demon with a narrow face and dark slanted eyes. It spoke to me in a high, squeaky voice. I remember saying that we couldn't leave the car out in the middle of the street. Then I found myself in an agonizing struggle. I was at once in the car, fighting to keep driving away, but unable to overcome an urge to get out and go back into the apartment while simultaneously fighting in the real world, an overwhelming urge to get out of bed and rush outside. I lay on the bed, flopping like a fish, then it ended. Contrary to my impression, I did not move an inch. The magazine was still propped up in my lap, and I could see my grandmother in her bed, the room across the hall, reading quietly. This terrible nightmare had obviously caused uh, not a uh, stir. And, uh, he, uh, starts talking about how, um, he wants to leave the United States at that point because of what's going on. So, uh, he does. He, he says, by January 1968, I had saved enough money and I left for London. I have never been in my life so glad to see the back of a place as I was to see the back of Texas. For years, I had explained my sudden departure by saying I couldn't stand the place after the Charles Whitman sniper incident. The truth, was, the truth was, I could have remained after that incident. It was my secret terror that drove me away. And uh, he does go to London. Uh, he also has another weird experience because he meets a lot of interesting friends. And uh, he says in July, it was, uh, it was at a friend's flat in Kings Road, Chelsea. For years I have described it as a raid from which I escaped by crossing the roof. What I actually remember is a period of complete perceptual chaos followed by the confusing sensation of looking down at the chimney pots of the buildings. Then there was blackness. I woke up the next morning in my own place with no idea how I got there. Whatever may or may not have happened in that flat was never acknowledged or referred to again by anybody who was there, with one exception, which I will recount in a moment. Then, um, he decides to leave London. He says he can't stand England for another week or even another hour. (coughs) Um... He, uh, goes, he takes a train to Italy, second class. He meets a young woman. They start traveling together. Then it says, at this point, my memories become extremely odd. If I do not think about them, they seem fine, but when I try to put them together, they don't make any sense. I recall that we went to Rome, but that we went a few days in Florence on the way. For 18 years, I told the story that I stayed in Florence for six weeks, but when I went there in the summer of 1984 to promote Mondadori's Italian edition of War Day, which is his book he wrote, I realized that I almost had no memories of the place. Even so, I placidly accepted this anomaly. For some reason, I left the young woman in Rome and dashed off the train on the train with no ticket, traveling almost at random. I ended up in Strasbourg where I saw the cathedral, then suddenly rushed to the station and grabbed another train, a local that crept across France, ending in Port Bow on the Spanish border. There, I took a Spanish train to Barcelona. I was so broke. So I hold up in a back room in a hotel on, on the Ramblas. I can remember nights of terror, being afraid to put out the light, wanting to keep the window and the door locked, living like a fugitive, never wanting to be alone, haunting the Ramblas. Grateful for the unceasing crowds. The rest of the memory is a jumbled mess. I am just not certain what happened, except that I lost weeks of time. I remembered something about being on a noisy, smelly airplane with someone who called himself a coach, and something about taking a course at an ancient university. I also recall seeing little adobe huts and expressing surprise to somebody that their houses were so simple. I returned to London in an odd way weeks later than I had planned with no way to explain those weeks. Um,
1: oh, my goodness.
0: So, yeah, he talks a lot about the uh, that. Missing time. Missing time. Uh, I'm just going to skip down just a little bit. I recall a little more until the spring of 1977, Um, from 1970 until then, my wife and I lived in a two-room flat on the top floor of an old building on West 55th Street in Manhattan. We were happy there, if cramped. Our marriage grew solid there, and we became confirmed in our life together. One evening in April 77, something so bizarre happened that I still cannot understand why we didn't make more of it. Um, of it. With both of us sitting together in our living room, somebody suddenly started speaking through the stereo which had just finished playing a record. We were astonished, naturally, when the voice held a brief conversation with us. The voice was entirely clear, not like the sort of garbled message sometimes picked up from a passing taxi's radio or ham operator. Never before it happened, and it didn't happen again. I do not remember the conversation except the last words, I know something else about you. That was the end. I was left dangling. We did not completely ignore the incident. I called the Federal Communications Commission, A man explained to me what I already knew, that ham radios and taxis and police radios sometimes interrupt stereos, but a conversation he asserted was impossible. Our stereo had neither a microphone nor a cassette deck. It was a KLH, a good and relatively inexpensive model, readily available in the mid 70s. And he'd already had it for about four or five years. And then a few weeks later, he says, I became possessed with an overwhelming desire to move. And, um...
1: Oh, my the, uh, goodness. Doesn't seem like it matters where he moves. Yeah. They know who he is.
0: Yeah. Um, again, without relating the incident to a subsequent sudden desire to move, I almost immediately decided to move to Connecticut. We rented a house in Coast Cobb. The term began in July 1978. We then left New York for Texas, spending most of our uh, spending most of the intervening weeks there. Uh, we slept no more than a few additional nights in that apartment. Again, we felt we had good reason to move. We had forgotten the horrifying incident. Whatever it was and attributed what in retrospect seemed the obvious outcome of panic of a rash to a rational desire to leave the city because Anne was pregnant we wanted to get out of our walk-up. It never occurred to us that we were making a radical move to another city almost on the spur of the moment. We were running but we did not know it. Mm. Um, And then... um, Way Within weeks, Uh, we didn't remain in Costco for a full year. In 1979, he was awakened by the bizarre impression that there were people pouring into the windows of our rather isolated house. I was terrified. We had a new baby. I remember trying to get to, to him, and that's all I remember. A few nights later, we were awakened by the neighborhood filling with terrible screams. Even though we called the police, they never came, and nothing was ever said by neighbors about the shrieking. Within a few weeks, we had left Coast Cobb because we were tired of the country and wanted to get back to City Living. An interesting further occurrence of screaming took place in August 1986 in Provincetown, Massachusetts. We were staying with friends, and in the middle of the night, we were awakened by a truly blood-curdling shrieks coming. It seemed from above the house. Neither our friends nor anybody we spoke to the next day had any memory of anything unusual happening that night, except for one person. When I asked him if he'd slept well, he said that he had been awakened by screaming. His house was about a mile from ours. He also has had a visitor experience in his past. Um, and that's where I'm going to end. Um, oh my
1: gosh.
0: I will say one interesting thing uh, that just popped into my head. Um, my, uh, and this is not anything to do with this book, my uh, mom <clears throat> still remembers this, and my grandma told me this. But my mom told me this, my grandmother confirmed this, uh, when my mother was a little girl that. Um, there was a night they were in the house, and it was her and her father and her mom and I think her brothers, and uh, I guess like all the kids were there. Excuse me. And uh, they said they heard what sounded like uh, hail. Uh, but it was like a day like this, like it was a nice day outside, and it was dark. And it was like maybe I don't know ten at night, but it was like there's no storm, nothing. Mm-hmm. But it was like hail pelted the, the roof for like I don't know like five minutes. And uh, then it just stopped. And there was never hail ever again. Never seen any hail. Um, that just Whoa. clicked in my mind as I read that. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's 855 here in uh, uh Peter, any thoughts on this? I
1: hope I'm not next.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This I mean, is
1: terrifying. Oh, my it gosh.
0: It is a little scary. Yeah. Um, Some people, you know, some people are so scared of the exorcist. And I'm like, this is more scary than that to me. Yeah. Because the exorcist was possibly based off somebody being possessed. But this is something that, you know, there's really no control you have over anything. Like, that's the biggest fear is there's zero control over anything. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. Uh, you can't escape it. You can't escape it. Yeah. 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 So it's uh, it's not good. Um, and I'm only like 40% of the book. So, I mean, we got a little bit more <laughs> left to go. But, uh, yeah. It's... Um, I mean, all this is Whitley Streber's account. So depending on what you feel about Whitley Streber, some people I'm sure would not believe him or some people would say well i don't know if i trust whitley Strieber." i mean i want to say i do uh maybe he's all yeah. making it up i mean he was a science fiction writer so he wrote several books very popular books so i guess he could have made an elaborate science fiction story but i don't think he did i don't think this is an elaborate sci-fi mm-hmm. story what do you think do you, do you trust whitley Strieber? Or...
1: i do i think that it's more likely that excuse me, that he became a science fiction writer because of his lifelong experiences with all this crap, mm. you know, like,
0: well, he, he was, he had already written those books before, before, uh, all this stuff had started happening to
1: him. Oh, So well, but not I the mean, boyhood things.
0: Uh, yeah. He had written the books before the, uh, events at the cabin in, in New York. Yeah. Like, yeah. Happened to him. I'm sorry. So yeah, he had already written a lot of those. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't know I think that I don't think it's an elaborate story And it was weird, I mean, obviously those people Whitley is very old uh, mm. The people you talk to may already be dead They probably are um, We don't hear about Too many abduction cases We do know there's people in the United States, at least in the U.S. That go missing We also, I heard, I uh, was on a podcast And uh, Whitley Streeper <laughs> No, it was George Knapp George Knapp and Jeremy Corbyn run a podcast called Weaponized. I've never listened to it. They did the Bob Lazar documentary, but apparently they got to talk to the guy that during the 80s and 90s ran the UFO like detection program for the whole Soviet Union. Because apparently they were seeing UFOs too. And they were basically just told, leave them alone. Like, don't don't mess with them. So... (sighs) I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like, there's certain evidence for certain things. You can choose to not believe, but, or you can choose to say, well, it doesn't matter. It's not real. Okay. That's fine. But I, I mean, after a while, like how many people do you have to hear before you're like, I maybe I should take it seriously. I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of scary. I mean, do you take it more seriously now than when we first started? Oh yeah. (laughs) You've got like a gun under your pillow you're sleeping with every night. You're going to like... Uh, I don't think that's going to help. No. That would,
1: wouldn't would
0: help. We don't know. I don't know. I know when... Uh, if you read like the... Um, can you give me my phone really quick? Sure. If you read the... Um, I'm just going to text somebody. something. If you read the accounts sure. of... Uh, um if you read the accounts of uh the roswell i don't know if you're familiar with that like the roswell crash
1: a little bit a little
0: bit yeah and then i think people said they saw like these beings on the ground and stuff my Mm. thing has always been like so you know they crash to the ground and then they're dead or one of them may have been partially alive um but later was killed or dead or who knows um You know, people are always like, yeah, you know, that's what happened. But that was, I think, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, he's talking about stuff, I think, that happened in the 90s. So, 30 years later. So, you know, who's to say that maybe there's a reason why they're not crashing anymore? You know, just like how 30 years ago, like, our military technology wasn't as advanced, but now it's gotten much better. So, there's a lot of people that theorize that, and there's whole other groups. And I don't believe all this, but... There are groups of people that say things like "We got Wi-Fi from them, from the visitors and stuff." And, and <laughs> in exchange, I mean, there's it gets deep, it gets really, really like really deep. Um, and I, I am not going to go down those rabbit holes because it's one thing to believe a man's story; it's another thing to start theorizing or saying, "Well, we got Wi-Fi from the aliens." I don't believe that's true. I really don't. Um, no. But yeah, no, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting and I definitely want to continue. This might be a longer series than I thought because I thought I was just going to do three, but it might be four, especially since this book takes a while and it's hard for me to do this and live and do everything else I've got to do. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, would you say you are a believer or would you say that you've certainly like possibly changed some opinions on aliens?
1: I would say that the evidence of his accounts of his eyewitness experiences and like of the letters that they've received of similar experiences gives a lot of weight to the evidence. That's what I would say at this point. I wouldn't say I'm a believer in aliens yeah. yet, but it's very freaky and there's a lot of evidence. Yeah,
0: yeah. there is. Yeah. Uh... And this is just one man, so right. that's the scary part. Is there's so many other people that have said like, yeah, I saw something, or this happened to me, or I was taken, and all that. So, mm-hmm. um, live your life, Peter. <laughs> live your life as if uh, as if you're missing time, because uh, let's be honest, <laughs> this whole podcast is a waste of an hour and a half. All right, you look up, and you've drank a whole beer. Because I mean, you don't know why, and then you're sitting in bed and you're like, What happened? Well, we did a podcast, and no one listened. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, live your life, Peter. Uh, choose to live it better. But thank you. Yeah, um, if you have any kind of experiences, feel free to write in everydayignorance1 at gmail.com. <laughs> Uh, Please like and share our podcast. I will say that... uh, I know I've talked to Peter about this a lot, but um, uh, we are doing really good, and we've actually almost hit almost 400 full... Like, for the whole time we've been doing it, 400 full plays. Like, we're at 395. And Mm. I feel like it was just, like, two episodes ago we were at 300. Like, I know it was not two, but that's still pretty fast. Like, we are are picking up. Um, Mm. I would like to hear people from other countries talk about their ufo experiences like i'd like to hear people from france or people from saudi arabia if they've ever seen anything Mm -hmm. so i don't know just think about it so um have a good week live your life as i said previously uh live your life as if as i said you're gonna get abducted because you probably are and really let's be honest (laughs) That's the only way you're going to afford to travel anywhere. In this economy? In this economy? Are you kidding me? That's like first class.